Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another Baseball America podcast. I'm Kyle Glazer. It's a beautiful Wednesday morning here in sunny Southern California. I hope it's similarly nice throughout the country, although I know it's a little cold and snowy in some other parts. But uh, nonetheless, we are still in the midst of a lockout. The uh, owners continue to have the lockout in place against the Major League Baseball Players Association. Uh, There are meetings this week. The two sides are not talking, but Hopefully something will speed up here in the coming weeks. In the meantime, we're continuing to plow through our Top 10 Prospects podcast series. And to do that, we are joined by J.J. Cooper today to discuss the Cincinnati Reds. J.J., you've done the Reds system off and on for almost, I want to say, two decades now? Over a decade? Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. It's, it's coming. I mean, Joey... Jay Bruce was not part of the organization the first time I did this. He was not yet drafted. Homer Bailey, I think, was the – I think that's my first year doing it. Or was, or maybe it was the year of uh, – uh, there was a two-way player. Oh, man. Uh, but Miguel Perez, who's now AAA manager, was a top 10 pro- – it was a bad system. Uh, you know, it was a thin system at the time. But I think 04 maybe my – 04, 05 was my first time doing the Reds list for us. Can I take a cheap shot and a comment about how old that makes you compared to me? Oh, yeah. No, I, I, I own. I you know? own that I have been doing this for a, you know, it's, it's, it's measured in uh, paleo, you know, it's a paleozoic era of my prospect coverage. And, you know, I, I, it's in eras now. So, yes, I've been doing this forever. I feel yeah, like the, the winter of 2004, which would have been that handbook cycle. I was a junior in high school and I'm now a, a man in my thirties with a, a wife and daughter and a mortgage. So that's how much things have changed. So uh, it's, but you've seen a little bit of everything through this Reds organization. And you mentioned, I mean, the highs, the lows. And with that, I, I do want to get your perspective on where this team is right now. So first and foremost, they made the expanded postseason in 2020. And last year, they actually finished with a winning record. They went 83 and 79. You know, had a solid year. Wasn't great, wasn't terrible. But anytime you have a winning record, particularly a club that struggled to get one of those for a couple years there last decade, it's, it's a good place to be. At the same time, we have seen this team offload salaries. It really, and, and just to be blunt about it, salary dumps. We saw them do it with the Race of Iglesias deal at the end of the 2020 season. And then this offseason, I'm just going to call it like it is, they gave away Wade Miley and Tucker Barnhart for close to nothing. I mean, these were just very, very, very clearly salary dump type of moves. Where is this organization right now, given that, I mean, every sign we're getting is financially, they're in a tough place that's going to make it difficult for them to compete. Uh, When we say, like, okay, look, we root for prospects. But Nick Quintana, who is the player that the Reds acquired in the Tucker Barnhart trade, that trade happened well before we did the prospect handbook. We were well aware of that trade. Nick Quintana does not appear on the depth chart for the Reds in the prospect handbook because we just look at it and say, at this point, he is not one of the top 
60 to 70 prospects in the red system. Maybe he gets back to that. He was a high draft pick, but he has not hit. And um, so, yes, I would call that a salary dump uh, of, a, of a trade. And Milan, and, they've, they've let him walk on waivers. You know, they didn't even get a prospect for him. And that's a guy who had a 3.37 ERA last year, made 28 starts in a hitter's ballpark for his home games, at least. That's a 141 ERA plus. They just outright let the Cubs claim him off of waivers. And Miley, that was one of the best seasons Miley's had in quite a while. He's been an up and down, you know, but he is also someone who's relatively durable, who if he was back with the Reds, he would clearly be immediately just penciled in as a key part of the rotation and, and off he goes. And this feels like right now, structure wise, salary structure wise, it is a stars and scrubs team in some extent. But the problem is, is that the stars or the, but the players who are making star salaries, there's several of these guys who you'd be like, okay, if we had it to do over again, where this team is right now, would you do it? Like, okay, Joey Votto has, has earned the contract that he got the 10 year contract that'll come up after 23. You know, I think there's a team option year in 23. So that's nearing the end of that. But Joey Votto had a good year last year. And again, you knew that you were getting, below market rate in the early years of that deal. And you knew that he would age as the deal went on. Okay. And the reality of it is, is if you look at those 10 year deals that were being handed out at the time, the Pujols deal, the Cabrera deal, you know, deals like that long, long, long-term deals. The Votto deal I think has actually worked out pretty well. Mike Moustakis is signed through 23. He's the second highest paid player on the team making 16 mil next year i don't know if he fits uh you know logically as a starter if everything breaks right he's like he the dh will be back so he probably will but him and eugenio suarez are making a lot of money now and are kind of they have flaws and the reality of it is is that they're just for a team that is trying to keep its payroll it seems like as a middle of the pack at best or lower middle of the pack uh payroll that means that they keep doing these trades where they're trading away talent mainly to keep payroll down, not to acquire more talent. You mentioned those. And that kind of has a chance of kind of damaging a team that, that does have a kind of a nice young core led obviously by Jonathan India. Yeah. And, and we talk about, again, there's a good rotation core in place here. Now we have to see what happens after the lockout ends and transactions are allowed again. Uh, Luis Castillo has been rumored to be on the trade block a couple of times. So we have to see what the Reds choose to do there. So I, I feel a little bad. We started with the negative before transitioning into the positive. Yeah. One of the big questions coming out of last year was which organizations will have done a decent job developing their players given that there was no season what was happening at the alternate training sites instructional league there was video for some teams but it was a lot of whispers and rumors and and teams wondering which organizations are going to do this better than others if any and what really stood out to me during this season looking at both the majors and the minors is how many reds prospects progressed how many guys that through the shutdown still got better and took steps forward. Jonathan India being first and foremost among them, we've talked about it. He was a guy who was getting crushed by pretty much anyone who wasn't employed by the Cincinnati Reds for the better part of three years. 
you reported that there were some positive developments at the alternate site. He came out spring training this year and was getting some of the loudest reviews of any player in spring training, prospect or not, goes out and wins NL Rookie of the Year award very, very handily. We saw on the prospect side, Hunter Green took positive steps forward. Nick Lodolo took positive steps forward. A guy like Ellie De La Cruz, who was a complete unknown last year and is now a consensus top 75 prospect in baseball. I do feel like if you're the Reds, while it's certainly disheartening to see these types of moves at the major league level, you know, waving Miley, trading Barnhart, trading Iglesias and salary dumps, the positive progression of these young players over the last year or two that is something to be very, very optimistic about. It is. And, and I think the thing that you have seen is, is that they have definitely made, made solid improvements on the development side. Not, and it's not perfect. I, I think we'll, we'll get to some of the players who, who may not have taken that step forward. But, but to see what they've done, okay, that gives them a good core. I, I do like the depth of this system. They do have prospects who are who should, I, the, the top prospects in the Reds organization should join Jonathan India in Cincinnati in 2022, assuming the lockout ends, please, please let it end at some point. But assuming that happens, Hunter Green, Nick Lodolo, Jose Barrero, these are all guys who, who, who should play in Cincinnati. That's, you would rather have your top prospects be on the cusp of the big leagues than you would Oh, they're 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 going to make it to A ball this year. That's very positive for them. That said, the tricky part is, okay, if all those guys it all breaks right, are they are the Reds stuck kind of in the middle here? Because it is hard for me to explain or envision how you mentioned they got to a winning record, they were competitive, which is good, and I don't want to make it sound like. Oh, I, you know, every team should either win 55 games or contend for a playoff spot. If you, hey, if you're at that 83 win spot, all you need is a few breaks to happen and you're a wild card team. But that said, I do look at this team right now and it's hard for me to see how they're going to catch the best teams in the Central in the next couple of years, partly because I, I don't, I kind of wonder how much flexibility they're going to have to add talent at the deadline if they need to do so to, to keep contending. Yeah, I mean, I think you're banking on Eugenio Suarez having a bounce back year, Jesse Winker continuing to stay healthy and play well, Joey Votto continuing to be ageless. I think there's a path here. Again, some of it's going to be if MLB expands the postseason, but, but a big part of it is this group of talent at the top coming up and producing relatively quickly. Looking at this top trio of Jose Barrero, Hunter Green, and Nick Lodolo, just to give everyone an idea of how close it was, those three players are within four spots of each other on our top 100. Jose Barrero's number 33 prospect on the BA top 100. Hunter Green's number 35 prospect. Nick Lodolo's the number 36 prospect. As you were sorting this out, JJ, how did you ultimately settle on Barrero number one for the second year in a row? It was tough because I can make a – a, a reasonable case for all three of these guys. And I can make a case against all three of these guys. None of these guys are Adley Rushman, Julio Rodriguez, Bobby Witt, the top guys where you're like, look, okay. I, they're the clear number one in a group. These guys are like, when I'm lining this up, you look at Hunter green, who's number two on this list on how we lined them up, but you look at Hunter green. Can I construct a scenario where Hunter green's the best prospect who ends up being the best 
group player out of this group? Absolutely. I mean, he, he, he has one of the best pure arms as measured by velocity that we have ever seen. And when I mean ever, I mean in the totality of baseball history, he is one of the hardest throwing pitchers who's ever strode out to the mound. Now, that fastball doesn't always play to the 103, 104 mile an hour velocity that it can get to, which is as a starter remarkable. Like he throws hard, as hard regularly or harder than any starter in Major League Baseball that we've had in the StatCast era. And his slider's really good. And when his slider's really good, his fastball plays even better because the slider sets up the fastball. So, okay. Everything breaks right, that's a front of rotation starter. Now, there's also a decent chance that it could be that it doesn't break all the way right. There still are concerns that his fastball has consistently, for the entirety of his career, has, has often been hittable. There, there are stretches where it plays like 103, which is crazy, Philo. But there are times where it plays like batting practice 95, which I know sounds crazy that 95 is batting practice sometimes now, but, but you know, it's, it's been a homer prone pitch at times. It's not always been a dominating pitch. His slider, I think is really kind of better than his fastball in some ways, but so that's the case for him. Barrero has not hit a whole lot in his two abbreviated stretches in the majors, but he did hit a lot in last year when he came back to the minors after being rushed too early I just think with him, the reason he ends up being number one on this group is his okay, position player versus pitcher, the little less risk with the position player, less injury risk, especially. But also, this guy's got to play up the middle in some way. He is a better shortstop defensively than anyone that the Reds fielded last year, which, okay. Give Kyle was Farmer he, credit. He actually stepped in and, and yeah. did a pretty nice job no. there. But yes, having, having Eugenio Suarez play shortstop early in the season was, was cover your eyes bad, predictably so. But, but the thing about it, Kyle, and Kyle Farmer is an instructive case to me of how, how the game has changed in the last decade. Because what Kyle Farmer did is show, like, this is a guy who was an infielder. The Dodgers then converted him to catcher. He was a futures game catcher. Uh, and then he, the, the Reds converted him back to infield. And here he is, and he ended up being the starting shortstop for them. But what he shows is, is like, okay, if you are reliable defensively and you are positioned well, that shortstop is a different position than it was in 1985, where you sat a guy out there on a, I, I know I've overused this, but basically on glorified concrete and said, hey, these balls are going to fly by you. And by the way, there's a right-handed hitter up, so take a step to your, you know, to your right. Oh, there's a lefty up, take a step to your left. We change how we, you know, the game has changed this way. But, but Barrero is rangier. Barrero should be a better defender. But even if he ends up also, he can also, if they need him to play center, he can play second. Got a lot of options there. Now it's just a question of settling in and getting comfortable at the big league level. And then I think Lodolo is probably the safest of these three. Um, Lodolo is going to pitch in the majors. I would be shocked if he didn't pitch in the majors in 2022. And I don't know if it's going to be the sexiest pitcher that we've ever seen, you know, to join the Reds rotation, but he knows how to pitch. He throws strikes. 
he was briefly shut down at the end of last year with a, what I've been told by multiple people was an extremely minor, you know, shoulder tightness, but nothing that seems to be any significant in, in you know, worry in, in any way. All three of these guys are guys who I expect to, to be useful big leaguers next year. And that's why they're three guys who are all top 50 prospects. All three of these guys got markedly better from last time we saw them in 2019, uh, which again is a huge credit to Sean Pender, the Reds farm director and their player development system. Barrero, what stood out to me just seeing him at the futures game was how much bigger he'd gotten and how much stronger he'd gotten. And the swing was also better too. And we, we saw that again, his major league stint was not great, but you look at what he did, double A, triple A power was way up. The strikeout rate was much, much better. Walks were up. I mean, everything was trending in the direction you wanted to see it. Both levels hit for average, got on base, and hit for power. Green, you've talked about. The slider took a jump forward. That helped the fastball play better. Got up to AAA, stayed healthy over the course of the season. All good things you wanted to see. I want to focus on Lodolo here, actually, because I feel like he's the guy, as you mentioned. He, he's, look, he's never going to light up a radar gun. He's probably never going to be in a pitching ninja gif. Like, there's nothing he does that, should make, that makes you go, oh, my gosh, or wow, or, you know, holy crap, are you kidding me? But what really stood out to me over the course of the year was as I was just making calls with evaluators throughout the game, every single person who saw him, and I mean every single one, was, hey, you guys need to get Nick Lodolo on your hundred. And then it was, Hey, you got to move him up. You got to move him up. You got to move him up. Even as we were doing our top 100 process, just to kind of peel the curtain back a little bit for listeners, Nick Lodolo was on our initial top 100, but he was lower than 36 by a, a, a decent margin. And the feedback just kept coming up from pro scouting directors, GMs, assistant GMs, that not only did he need to be markedly higher, but a lot of people made the argument that they felt he was, one of the two best left-handed pitching prospects in baseball, along with Reed Detmers. And many went so far to say they considered him the best left-handed pitching prospect in baseball, just his ability to move up, down, and out, full assortment of pitches. The guy can just pitch. And, and I do think that sometimes, especially in the age of Twitter and all the measurables out there, people just want to see a number that really makes their jaw drop. But sometimes it's about the art of pitching and that leads to success. And I have to say, it really did jump out to me how many people are in on Nick Lodolo, despite the lack of, you know, visual stuff that makes you go, wow. And I want to make clear, like, this is not a guy who's, you know, I, if you're hearing this and you don't have your prospect handbook and you haven't, don't have a baseball American subscription, you may think that we're saying that this guy sits like 88 to 90. Like, this is a guy who sits 93, 94, who will touch a six or a seven. I don't, you know, like the stuff here is, every bit quality big league stuff like it's not a question of like oh he's gonna have to smoke and mirror this like it's just not as dominant blow you away miss a billion bats kind of stuff but it is a guy who also has enough of an assortment to stay a step ahead uh, of hitters as well because he can throw multiple pitches in whatever count and and i think that the key thing for him that's going to stand out is the command is the command and control has the chance. Like if you said, if we're listening, if you're listening to this podcast five years from now and you're listening from the future and you say, man, Nicola Dodo's ended up being a lot better than what they're talking about. What it would be is because, well, you know what? If a pitcher has six command, or that maybe develops into seven command down the road, 
Well, that's the kind of thing that could, can be that differentiator that helps the guy take a further step. Kind of what you're saying with the feedback you got, like saying people saying this is a, a, one of the best lefty pitcher pitching prospects or the best lefty pitching prospect in the game. That kind of a lot of that comes from what you talked about, that ability to locate all around the strike zone, to go in and out of the strike zone with multiple pitches. And for his career, admittedly abbreviated pro career so far, hello COVID and all that, but in his 69-inch uh, innings of, uh, of work so far, 1.4 walks per nine. That's, that is, I don't throw, you know, I, I, I don't miss the zone when I'm trying to throw in the zone. I don't struggle and lose feel for command for, you know, for innings at a time. Nick Lodolo knows what he's doing and he does it regularly. 108 strikeouts to 11 walks in 69 career innings while getting up to AAA in his first full season. And certainly impressive all around. JJ, we mentioned these three were in the top 100. The final guy that was also in the top 100 was Ellie De La Cruz. I alluded to this earlier in the podcast. This was someone that, frankly, we, we at Baseball America know prospects as well as anyone in baseball. I can guarantee you half of our staff had never heard of Ellie De La Cruz, myself included, before this season. He went out and was the number one prospect in the Arizona Complex League. And again, just another testament to Reds player development, helping guys get better. He was slotted into our top 101 spot. And again, as we sourced the list out for feedback from executives all around the game, he was another guy. And frankly, Hunter Green was too, consistently, hey, move this guy up. This guy should be higher. This is a stud. Where did this guy come from and what do the Reds have here? Uh, so, so one of the things that has happened here is that uh, what has happened is you hear this sometimes and sometimes it's good news and sometimes it's bad news. You'll hear of the player, the international signees sign at 16 and 16 year olds have not finished growing in many cases. And I, again, I've done the Reds list for a really long time. I can give you an example where that worked out poorly. I believe when the Reds signed Juan Duran, who many of you listening to this are going to go, who? But many years ago, Juan Duran was a very big deal. He was part of a massive international class. The Reds signed him and Jorman Rodriguez in the same class. They both got a ton of money. They both were premium, premium prospects in the international class of like, Oh, six, oh, seven, maybe, but around that range. I think when the Reds signed Juan, well, when the Reds first started scouting Juan Duran, I think he was like six, two, six, three. When they signed him, I think he was six, four. By the time he hit A class A, I think he was six, seven, close to six, eight. And in that case, it kind of transformed him in a less than ideal way. Like he got longer, he got bigger, he got slower. He became kind of a slow twitch guy, a big strike zone, big power, but it didn't work out. Can I, can I chime in here? It, yeah. I love this reference. Juan Duran, uh, I remember covering him. My very first job, Victorville Daily Press, covering the California League as the High Desert Mavericks beat writer. And that was when the Reds affiliate at high A was in Bakersfield. I saw Juan Duran in 2012. And yeah, he was 6'7", 230. 
And when he made contact, it went a long way. But he very rarely made contact with the baseball. 151 strikeouts, 26 walks looking back that year. I mean, yeah, this was just your your big, stiff dude who couldn't really hit or move that well by the time he was and I can't believe he was 20 years old at the time. He looked like he could have been 28, but yeah, he was 20 years old that year. And it was very clear that it just wasn't, wasn't there. Uh, like, uh, okay. I, I went back to a founder report I wrote from 09 about him. Duran grew six inches in the span of the year and he's still getting adjusted to his newfound height. Spoiler alert from the future. He never fully adjusted to that newfound height. He went from six one, six two to six seven slash six eight. So well, guys, guys in, get bigger and stiffer. It does right. happen, and that's but what happened in, with him. In Ellie De La Cruz's case, Ellie has has grown since the Reds signed him. I think now we have him at six five. But great news if you're a Reds fan. Great news if you're an Ellie De La Cruz fan. That has not led to Ellie De La Cruz becoming stiffer and slower what it has done is he's grown he's gotten stronger he's still twitchy though too where you have this player who has gotten bigger more athletic more physical and by the way can really run can really throw can really hit for power and might be able to stay at shortstop Okay, well, that's like the that's the great combo of this, like where you have a guy who you sign him, and you think you have he's one body type, and then he shows up the next year, and you're like, and to his credit, he put in the work too. But wow, you're better in every aspect of this than you were a year ago. You keep talking about credit to player development, credit also to Ellie De La Cruz for putting in the work. But so he showed up this year, and all of a sudden. He's one of the best players of the year in the extended spring. And he's one of the best players in the Arizona complex league. And they can't keep him there because he's too good for the league. And so he goes to low A. Now there's risk involved because as a player whose pro experience is very minuscule at this point, they'll swing and miss at pitches that he should just keep the bat on the uh, shoulder and, and go on to another pitch. Or he'll sometimes make contact on a pitch where it's like, is that really the pitch that you wanted to, to be the pitch that you hit in this at bat? That'll happen to him. But he steadily, he continually learns, he continues to get better, and he seems to be one of those players who combines excellent athletic attributes and tools with that kind of steady skill development and hunger to, to basically embrace failure and improve from it that gives him a chance to be someone who's really good yeah and just for context he signed for sixty-five thousand dollars, which is not a whole lot on the international market made his debut in the dsl in 2019 and, and played well i mean again solid average solid on base but it wasn't anything that really jumped out at you and made you say oh whoa who's this guy and there weren't really reports saying that either and this is to me that the most telling thing where even the reds i mean you, you just never really know what can happen with a guy the fact he wasn't invited to the alternate training site last year i mean that makes sense he's a kid who had never played above the dsl but they didn't even bring him to instructional league like he wasn't even considered one of their instructs guys which is made for all the best young guys at the lowest levels of the minors 
he wasn't even invited to that. I mean, this guy really did just come out of absolutely nowhere. And again, it's a credit to him, you know, whatever he did at home last year, um, or last year, I should say 2020, we're now in 2022, whatever he did in 2020, it was really, really impressive. As you mentioned, there's a really, really, really big tool set there. There's also a very, very aggressive approach. And we saw that exploited once he got up to Daytona and low A, 65 strikeouts against only 10 walks in 50 games. So again, young player, aggressive. You're going to see that happen, especially a guy who has grown like he has and is still learning his new body and his long limbs and his bigger strike zone. But you see the tools, you see the progression, and there's a lot to get excited about. And again, this was a guy that I think anytime you talk about someone who literally people who are prospect people had never heard of him at the start of one year. And the next year he is a consensus top 100 prospect and someone's scouting directors all across baseball are saying, Hey, Jack, this guy up your list. It's just remarkable. And really a testament to all involved, both the player and the organization. Yeah. Oh, and to me, he is one who will be fascinating to watch in 22 because it is a, it is a small, we, we know the tools, the tools are incredibly loud, but now you want to see the marriage of tools and skills. And we saw flashes of that, but we also saw flashes last year. Once he kind of settled in, in low A, he was one of the less experienced players in that league. And he showed signs of that. He didn't set the world on fire in low A, especially after he set the world on fire in his first week or two there. And then after that, he was okay at best. So it's going to be interesting to watch this year. Okay. No one expects him to make as much of a jump in 22 from 21 as he did in 21 to 22. If he makes that much of a jump, he's one of the, he's, he's the best prospect in baseball by the end of this year, because like the, the expert, oh, that's quite a statement. No, no, but hold on. Listen, as you said, he wasn't on any radar. The reds did not like, he went from being, if you ask the Reds where he lined up, he was probably the Reds' 50, 60, 70th best prospect coming into the year. To go from there to where he is now, I'm just saying if you said he's going to do the same amount of improvement, well, then he would outplay high A, push himself to double A, and then triple A. I don't say, again, he's not going to do that realistically. I'm just, my point is, is like the jump last year was massive. Now this year, can we see him make skill improvements similarly where it's like, okay, the selectivity has improved. He's stringing together better at bats. We're still seeing all the, the guy who can rocket a ball down the line, the guy who can, has a plus-plus arm, the guy who can turn in plus-plus run times. You still see that, but you're also seeing, man, he really grinded out that at bat or that, ga- that game. You know, he, he had three at-bats where he spit on breaking balls out of the zone and got in the position to drive the ball. Can he do that regularly? If he can, watch out for L.A. De La Cruz. All right, JJ. So with these four leading the way, the Reds checked in as our seventh best farm system in the organization talent rankings. But those talent rankings aren't just about the top 100 prospects. It's about the entire system. And there is a lot behind these guys. I want to dive into them. First, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. 
Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. What I love about using Indeed is how it does a lot of that organizational work for me. I can sort through candidates. I can respond to them. I can schedule interviews all through Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses, including Baseball America, that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Just go to Indeed.com slash Baseball America right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right, we are back with J.J. Cooper breaking down the Cincinnati Reds farm system. J.J., I'm pretty sure we've gotten all of Cincinnati excited with how much we just talked about Jose Barrero and Hunter Green and Nick Lodolo and Ellie De La Cruz and how all these guys have improved. All these guys, or at least I should say the top three, are primed to impact the Major League team this coming season. And Ellie De La Cruz, as you mentioned, has a chance to definitely vault into the top 50, top 25 prospects, and maybe even more. But a good farm system is about more than just having four studs at the top. If you have four studs at the top and then you drop off a cliff, that just means you have four studs at the top. doesn't mean you have a good farm system. The Reds have a good farm system. They rank seventh in our organization talent rankings. And as we move down this top 10, you see a lot of guys here who were high draft picks, who have shown flashes of performance. At the top of that is Matt McLean, who was their first round pick this year, had a really good year at UCLA. But I want to dive into a pair of prep outfielders that they've drafted the last two years. Austin Hendrick was their first round pick in 2020. They took Jay Allen with their second pick in 2021. Each of them was considered among the best outfielders in their respective classes. We talked about all the guys who have made improvements. Austin Hendrick was a player who did struggle. Now, when he came out, you have to remember, this was a Northeast kid who was power first. Uh, There were a lot of concerns about how much contact he would make, and those showed up in his pro debut. A lot of swings and misses, and and as a result, his power output was not particularly good just because he didn't make enough contact. He hit 211, hit only seven home runs in 63 games, and missed the rest of the year. How did you go about comparing Austin Hendrick and Jay Allen? And and I think most importantly, what is Austin Hendrick's status right now after uh, just what was a difficult first really, I should say first full season, really a difficult pro debut period. This was another kid who was a high school draft who didn't get rookie ball and jumped straight to low A. So this is, again, I I went back and forth on this. And I think we went back and forth. Again, this is a group project, how we do this. And the thing that did stand out to me is, is, okay, there's no question. Austin Hedrick had a bad, bad, it's not a good 2021 season. Like, it's just not. But, okay, so what does that mean? And and the thing I kind of, okay, so why is that? And it's like, okay, does he have really poor hand-eye? Does he have really poor pitch selection? And as I talk to people in the reporting on this, it doesn't seem like that's the case. 
as I watched, because I they don't they're not all the time, but as I watched games of uh, of of Austin Hendrick, kind of wondering like what happened from the guy who was one of the top hitting prospects in his high school class to now, and, and the consistency feedback we got was he's a guy who needs to make a swing change, and his swing is too uphill, it's too steep, it doesn't leave the bat in the zone long enough to square it up. It does leave it in the zone long enough to foul it off. And he does, oh, he fouls off more than his share of pitches. But you want to see that guy, okay, so now can he make that adjustment? Can he, he's a guy who needs to trade a little bit of loft for a little bit more consistent contact. I could see putting Jay Allen ahead of him. I also didn't want to basically throw away everything that we had before on Austin Hendrick based off of one bad year in 63 games in, by the way, low a Southeast, which was the, the crazy town of, uh, of, of, of stats and all, because you had the robo umps and you had, it was an unusual area for, you know, there's a lot of factors there. That said, everything I said that we're kind of saying was concerning about Austin Hendrick. Jay Allen went out and was really good in his debut. Now it's the complex, it's the Arizona league, but Jay Allen went out and for all there had been some concerns about how much he was going to hit right away. He was a guy who, who had a little bit less experience than some players in that draft class, because this is a guy who was also a prominent quarterback. He also played basketball. He was that multi-sport star that you, you kind of want to hear it, you know, like that a lot of scouts love to see. And he went out and lit it on fire. Again, 19 games. Let's don't go overboard here. But he was really good in the Arizona Complex League. And I will say by, by midseason 2022, if everything we just said about both of those is still true, this order will flip. The hope if you're a Reds fan, if you're Austin Hendrick, is – okay, now you're going to see him make adjustments in 22 to improve and kind of put a pretty poor 2021 behind him. The flip side on Jay Allen is, is, okay, now could he do that in full season ball the same way he did in a very abbreviated, but this was a guy also who was coming out of Florida. Like this isn't a guy who hadn't been challenged in high school ball too on the showcase circuit. This isn't, didn't come out of nowhere to see him go out and be one of the better hitters in the Arizona complex can I put you on the spot for a minute? Yeah. What about Austin Hendrick? You put a 50 on his hit grade. What about Austin Hendrick makes it seem like he can be an average hitter? I just remember talking to Ben Badler, who's in the Northeast and saw a lot of Austin Hendrick, even coming out of the draft. His take was, this guy's going to, you know, you're hoping for 240 with a lot of bombs, which makes him a 40 hitter with 60 power. That seemed right. to be even the hope there. Then he goes out and has a 38% strikeout rate and hits 211 in his pro debut there's you know i, I right no nope. this is much more of a 40 hitter is what you're hoping for i i, I struggle to see where you're can where you can get a 50 want, hit out of this my honest assessment is is like looking at it right now i agree with you um i that's not a great answer but i look at it now and i like when i looked at that i'm like i put a 50 hit on oh, <laughs> oh that may be a little rich you know like I, and again it happens like but I look at it now, like I do think, I think that the bat to ball skills are better than everything indicated. He did also have a 380 OBP, 
again, some of that was also RoboWump induced as well, which is, <laughs> hey, that, uh, that strike zone was not a normal, the normal class A strike zone in that league. But 50 may be the upper ceiling of what Austin Hendrick can do as a hitter, I would say. You're expecting the power to be more than the hit tool. And if I had that one to do over again, I might tweak it a little bit, to be honest. Fair enough. It happens. We all have some grades that we look back a month or two later. It's like, I might have been a little high there. But moving down to the system, again, we talk about guys taking steps forward. Graham Ashcraft, another pitcher in the red system who took a step forward. He's here near the back of the top 10. How many guys were ultimately in consideration? Because there is some depth in this system. Again, we, we established the top four pretty clearly the top four. You know Matt McClain's going to be in this top 10. You know, Hendrick and Allen being high draft picks, a lot of pedigree, they're going to be in this top 10. How many spots here were kind of up for grabs and how much of it was, you know, yeah, no, this guy's a clear top 10 guy? Um, I think there was actually a lot of good debates. Like the guys, you know, there's some guys, there were some college draftees they had who were just outside of the 10 who – I could easily construct cases for. They're a little safer, probably. There are some guys a little further. Like, the Reds added a number of kind of interesting reliever types to their 40-man. Guys who I do think could help them in 2022. You don't want to go overboard on non-closer relievers on how high you rank them. But at the same time, these are guys who are are pretty close to the big leagues, uh, including – uh, one of my favorites of that is is we have Edwin Diaz's little brother uh, on this team. Not a top ten guy, you know, but but it is like he does kind of do some uh, some Edwin Diaz type things. Um, so so there are guys interested like that. But the thing that stands out to me about this list and what I really do love about this group, which is a keep an eye on for twenty twenty two thing, and I think something that I want to write about at some point soon is. You get to the 20s on this list. The Reds had a great DSL group. I, I, I mean that like, okay, that is the guys who are the furthest from the majors. The, the path from the Dominican Summer League to Cincinnati has many stops in between. And admittedly, each one of those stops is a potential off-ramp on your path to the big leagues. So, it's, a, it's a five to six-year path. Yes, So I don't want to make this sound like, hey, the key thing to a great farm system is having the best DSL team out there because there's a lot of things that can happen along the way. But that that DSL team that the Reds had, you look at guys like Ariel Amante, you look at guys like Carlos Jorge, who is really interesting to me, Leonardo Balcazar. They had a number of guys there who – have some physical attributes, but more than that, they also, in a lot of cases, can really kind of (laughs) hit. And I like guys who can really hit. And uh, Jorge was, uh, to me, one of the ones where I've been burned before, where you, you talk about a guy who you say, well, he's not the biggest dude. He's a second baseman, more probably than a shortstop. And you say, so uh, let's, let's just give him some more time before. It's like, no, I've been burned before. I don't care how short he is. And he's like 5'9", five, 5'10". Five, so he's not like 5'2". Yes, he's probably a second baseman. But then you ask the question, can you hit? And it's like, Carlos Jorge can hit. And hey, okay, so what are some other guys who fit those attributes? Well, we've seen a number of guys come up who are short second basemen who've come up through the minors from the DSL and have been really good. Okay, 
Let's keep an eye on him. Not, he's not a top 10 guy. He's not a top 20 guy yet, but I'm really intrigued. And if he goes out and has a great 2022, I'm going to be even more intrigued. So there's two guys who do something else that tends to work out pretty well in terms of guys carving out some kind of major league career that I want to ask you about that are at the back of this list who are further up the ladder. The first is Alejo Lopez, another guy who, again, was kind of not on anyone's radar, went out and actually had statistically one of the best years in the minors last year, got up, made his major league debut, did it you know, double A, mostly at triple A, was age appropriate for the triple A level. Again, just a guy that sometimes we see, got, you know, 25-year-olds who finally break out and hit in AAA. Sometimes those guys go on and do something. Two recent examples are two guys I cite a lot. Jared Walsh and Jake Cronenworth were in their age 25 seasons in AAA when things started to click for them. I'm not saying he's that guy, but I've learned to be intrigued by, you know, that's not an age that's quote-unquote too old. Sometimes those guys carve out careers for themselves. And the other guy, along with Alejo Lopez at the back of the list that intrigued me a little bit was Mark Colesbury, the catcher out of Florida, who, again, entered the year not on a whole lot of radars, but really, really stood out. I got to watch him for a week with Team USA when they were doing the Olympic qualifying in Florida. I mean, this guy put guys with major league experience on the bench, the way he worked with the pitchers, the way he caught games, the way he received, the way he called games, the way he controlled the run game. And there was a surprising amount of power in there too. I mean, he's a smaller guy, but I saw him take a, a decent fastball off the batter's eye in Port St. Lucie, which, you know, the ball does not fly in those uh, stadiums in Florida. What do the Reds have with these two? Again, I, I don't think anyone would suggest these are future everyday, you know, they probably are more in the backup world, but I do think anytime you look at a system and you have two guys who have a realistic chance to carve out big league careers and soon, it's a positive and, and there's something there. I, so Lopez, the thing that stands out to me about Lopez is, is that Lopez, he's a high school draftee and it's taken him a long time. But when you say sum it all up, he's always hit. And when I say he's always hit, this is a guy who's a 300, a better than 300 career hitter for a, what is now very lengthy minor league career. That's over 1500 at bats. This guy's hit everywhere he's gone. So you can focus on what he doesn't do all that well. And it's like, okay, I don't know if he's a defensively. You're kind of limited with him. Like, oh, is he a utility infielder? Well, you really don't want him at shortstop. Okay, well, that kind of limits that. Like, it's a second base, third base, corner outfield type role. But he's going to hit. And guys like that usually end up finding their way to some kind of role. Kosovari is the one where I'm a little bit more like – the reports on him were really good last year at times. And he started out really hot in trip, you know, in the minors, double a started out hot, went to the Olympics. And I don't know how much of the fact of he then went, so he went to the Olympics and then he came back. And so that's an adjustment and he moved up to triple a, but he also, he didn't hit like he, he did focus on more power last year, but he hit 233 in AA and 190 in AAA. And so the fact that he's on this list and he's on the top 30 does kind of stand out for like just how like impressed people were with how he handled staffs and all those kind of things. But I'm more, a little bit more concerned on that one just from the standpoint of like where the expectations for a backup catcher as far as batting average are pretty low, but 
his swing is so geared to power now that there's a lot of swing and miss that comes with it. And it's, I like how you put it. It's surprising power, but this isn't that six foot two, 240 pound backup catcher where you're like Mark Parent in his prime, because I'm really old, where it's like, oh, he's going to strike out 40% of the time, but he'll also hit 15 homers because he just swings really hard. And when he make, does connect, it goes forever. I, I'm a little bit more concerned with him just because of that. Like, I do have swing and miss concerns with him. No, there's no question. If it clicks, it's a pure backup. Um, but again, just watching the way he handled staffs, you know, guys who had big league time, guys who were younger prospects, uh, the way he just did everything defensively and, and the high praise hearing from Mike Sosha, who, as we know, has very, very, very high expectations from his catchers. Just raise my eyebrows a little bit again as a guy who was not really on radars. And, and you're right, deservedly slow. You look at his offensive performance leading up to this year, who's not someone you were ever going to really highlight. But um, just the defensive ability, you know, and the bar for catchers is so low right now that it would not surprise me if he's able to hang around as a backup, you know, and that, that Renee Rivera type of role where, hey, there's no expectation this guy is really going to hit, but he's a really good defender. He'll get you an occasional home run. And then you look up and Rene Rivera's had a much longer career than I think anyone ever expected. So mm-hmm. I think that that's more kind of the idea here that I'm kind of referencing. And Rivera as well is not a big guy. He's 5'10", Cole's very 5'8", though that might be a generous listing. But we'll see what happens. JJ, any final thoughts on this red system as, as a whole? I mean, we've talked about there's star power at the top, there's proximity, there's depth, there's lower level guys to get excited about. This is a good farm system. This is an organization that's coming off two straight winning seasons. They just have to figure some things out financially. But I, I do feel like from the outside looking in, you can see the pieces in place here for the Reds to, to you know, be okay as long as they can you know, afford to pay some guys. Uh, the one last thing I just wanted to bring up is I do think that one other thing that kind of can fly a little bit under the radar that, that, that the Reds did probably as well or better than anybody is in the uh, it, 2020 was a weird draft year. Obviously, we know five rounds. And then we had these very strict limitations on how much you could sign non-drafted free agents for. Well, no one did a better job, in my opinion, of hitting that NDFA market than the Reds. Carson Spears is 13th on our, if you get your handbook, he's, I'll give that one away. He's 13th as an NDFA out of Clemson. Uh, you know, they had a bevy of pitchers who were really kind of analytical signings, I think, in a lot of cases, where it's like, we like these attributes. A number of those guys have gone out and been pretty good so far. A number of those guys have gone out and shown, oh, in addition to having these pitch attributes, they also have some field of pitching or they're also good relievers or whatever, where I do think that that's kind of given them a little bit of a further depth boost to have taken this, this area that some teams basically just were like, we're out. We're not really worrying about this. They really worried about it. They went out and hit the NDFA market hard. And I think that they're going to find at least a couple of big leaguers out of it. And you say, oh, wow, they got a couple of big leaguers out of it. That's a market where that's free talent. That's finding talent in the most overlooked. That was NDFAs who could not sign for more than 20K per player. To find big leaguers out of that is potentially 
incredibly useful. And I'm pretty confident that they're going to find at least a couple out of that. Yeah, I remember immediately in Instructs, uh, Jacob Hurtboyce, I, I might be mispronouncing that mm-hmm. last name out of yeah, Army, was Army. Someone who, you know, immediately was someone who jumped out, went out and had his first full season this year at high A and, and did pretty well, hit for average, got on base above a 400 clips, stole bases. Again, there's no power there, but he knows his game, hits for average, gets on base and steals a ton of bases and he's a good athletic outfielder. Like if that guy ends up playing even a, a day in the major leagues for you, that, that's a win. As you mentioned, all these guys were non-drafted free agents signed for no more than $20,000. You mentioned guys like Carson Spears. You mentioned Hurt Boyce. I mean, I actually I think it's Hurt Advice. That's what I'm going to go with, Hurt Advice. Um, yeah, no, there, there's talent here. They found talent on that market and you know, that's what good farm systems do. They find talent in every market we've talked about. There's international signings in here. There's high draft picks. There's NDFAs. So the Reds have done a good job and, uh, seeing how it all translates in the future is, is what everyone has to wait and see. Um, but again, I do feel like when you look at the Cubs are rebuilding, Obviously, the Brewers and Cardinals are always competitive, but the Pirates are rebuilding, the Cubs are rebuilding. You know, the Reds should be able to hang in at least third place in this division for a while. And if the postseason expands, you know, they, they certainly can sneak in. Or if they have a year where a couple things break right and one of the other teams gets hit hard by injuries. I mean, I, I do see scenarios here for the Reds to be competitive as much as it's been disheartening watching them. Again, give away Ray Sale Iglesias, give away Tucker Barnhart, put Wade Miley on waivers after he was their best starting pitcher. And by a lot of measures last year, he actually led the team in war. So um, those are disheartening moves, but, but there is talent here. And I, I don't feel like it's as hopeless as maybe it might seem from the outside with, with some of those financial moves at the major league level. It'll be interesting to watch. All right, JJ, before we wrap up, any final thoughts? I know the prospect handbook, uh, we just released a PDF yes. version and uh, that's a, a great chance for everyone listening to this podcast to see right away who is 11 to 30 on this Reds list, as well as every other uh, team in the major leagues. So the, yeah, the key thing with that is, is if you order a baseball America prospect handbook directly from baseball America, to base, just go to baseballamerica.com, click on uh, uh, at the very top, go to store, click on books, order it that way. If you do so, the, the actual physical copies are slower this year, unfortunately, because printers are backed up. That's just Supply it's, chain it's kind issues. of, yes, exactly. But because of that, order it from us. You'll get an email from me telling you how to give you your e-version of it. If you order it, basically I send those out every weekday. So business day. So if you order on Tuesday, on Wednesday, you will have your prospect handbook e-version in your hands. If you order on Saturday, on Monday, you'll have your e-version in your hands. So go get it. If you haven't gotten it already, it's, it's time. So we will get you in your hands. Rankings for 1,200 prospects, because we do rank the top 40, full write-ups for 900 prospects, and then additional write-ups for another 10. And then if you go through the depth chart, then you're, uh, you're now up to like, oh, I don't know, 1400 1500 1600 players maybe a little more than that in that prospect handbook go get it baseballamerica.com click on you go go to the store and you can get your copy in your hands you're if you're listening to this by tomorrow you can have it in your hands yeah, a lot of people already have it, and uh, it's always a, a great thing, and it's a lot of work to produce, but we're proud of the final product, and uh, we certainly encourage Reds fans and fans of every other team to go ahead and grab a copy now. As for this podcast, that will do it. This has been another BA Prospects podcast. Go ahead and give us a review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever platform you're listening on. We would love to hear from you. 
for JJ Cooper. I'm Kyle Glazer. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, everybody.